0: Welcome, I'm Ryan Merkley, director for the Aspen Institute's Commission on Information Disorder. Thanks for joining us. The session is part of a series of briefings on mis- and disinformation hosted by the Aspen Institute in tandem with our Commission on Information Disorder. We're talking to experts in the field who can help us to make sense of the many facets of the information crisis that we're all facing. They are designed as a resource For our commissioners but also for the broader public we hope that you find this series which we are calling disinfo discussions both useful and informative so in today's conversation i am speaking with Olivier Sylvain he is a professor of law at Fordham university and his research is in communications law and policy some of his most recent writing scholarship and public speaking has been on section 230 of the communications decency act and the social impacts of AI and targeted advertising tools. And these are topics I hope that we're gonna get into with him today. Welcome Olivier.
1: Hi Ryan, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. Um, Let's jump right into talking a little bit about section 230. Um, You've argued that the law served its purpose in the early days of the internet, but was not or has not adapted uh, to the way content is delivered to users today. Can you walk us through that argument a little bit? In
1: 1996, the principal aim of legislators was to promote platforms that supported user-generated content. I'll explain my air quotes in a second. Um, And the idea was to promote free speech innovation by application developers and uh, um, allow the internet to unleash itself. Um, freely unfettered by government regulation. Mm-hmm. And so the things that people had in mind and, and, the, and the principal drafters of the legislation at the time will tell you this, uh, they're thinking of electronic bulletin boards and news groups. What soon happens um, to the amusement of all of us, I mean, it's just a kind of remarkable transformation, just in a few years, um, the ad model emerges and and transforms um, what was once a very kind of quaint and and remarkably beautiful idea into something a little bit more commercial. And you'll forgive me if I don't think it's as beautiful um, in that the commerce that starts driving the um, uh, intermediaries at this point, driven by optimizing user engagement. And this is the sort of thing that I I think many people in the audience are familiar with, uh, at the expense of all else. What the immunity under Section 230 did was protect platforms from the harms and bad content that their users posted on the theory that they were not the ones that were responsible for it. But when you are principally aimed at optimizing user engagement, you start deploying tools that keep people online and you make connections with people with, between folks that would not otherwise be possible. And so you do transform yourself into something that is far different from a platform, right? You, in my view, um, you, you transform yourself into something as actively engaged in shaping the online experience.
0: I want to dig into that a little bit. You know, the, one of the things you've written about is that the courts uh, and policymakers should compel the platforms to do more, that should have compelled them to do more, and that Section 230 as a shield kind of created a barrier to that. Can you explain that a little bit and and say why you think that is?
1: The proponents of the doctrine today will tell you, as they did over 20 years ago, that the protection for intermediaries is meant to make sure that cases alleging harms arising from user-generated content would not get past the motion to dismiss. Hmm. So I'm a former litigator, and I just say that like everyone knows it. I assume people understand what it means, but in litigation, most cases are resolved early on in different ways. A motion to dismiss just reviews the complaint based on the allegations, reads them as true. And if there is some legal barrier, even if the allegations are true, the case gets kicked out. What the advocates of 230 wanted was an immunity that would force these cases out even if Um, there are allegations of harm if the allegations are about or treat the intermediaries as publishers of user-generated content. So what that means is that today we no longer have a mechanism, a a mechanism that otherwise available for all other entities uh, in the US, for the most part, um, to evaluate the facts in any given case. You look to the merits of the complaint and if the complaint alleges that the intermediary is nothing more than a publisher or distributor of user content, user-generated content, we never get to find out how complicit or involved they are. And my argument has been that the that the immunity as the courts have developed it, forecloses that possibility for public scrutiny during the course of litigation. And I wanna make one more point about this. We actually might have disagreements And I might actually agree that an intermediary in any given case is not complicit under law when we have all the facts presented, but we never get to that. Under the current doctrine, that kind of public scrutiny in court is foreclosed if cases are dismissed early on before discovery.
0: So, Section 230 immunity is sort of a get out of court free card in that story. Uh, And as you said, you never get the test of the case. Uh, the facts don't get weighed and you don't get decisions that might influence the shape of law through their uh, ultimate, you know, the the decisions of the courts. What do you think, what would the kinds of cases we might see if they could get past uh, that shield? What kinds of cases do you think would come forward? And what do you think might be the impact of those kinds of decisions if that did happen?
1: So this is a great question, and it's a question I, I, that's, this is the land I'd like to be in, uh, we, we are not there, but, but, you know, it's a hypothetical set of questions that, that I'm happy to indulge. I've written about the ways in which, um, intermediaries who invoked section 230 left and right would, um, get the, 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 their, uh, the automated systems that decide, you know, how a content gets distributed or how ads get targeted to kind of, Evaluate whether they are complicit in, say, housing discrimination, right, which you mentioned is the sort of thing that I've written about. Um, That is that they are doing things that materially contribute, but what's more, are legally complicit under whatever the governing law is. Um, I've written about the ad manager on Facebook, I've written about advertising generally, but it doesn't have to be that setting also one of the interesting questions is, to what extent is an intermediary complicit when there is some wrongdoing that happens in the real world as a result of the connections that are made online? And I think the people are very alert to this after the January 6th mob attack on the Capitol. Yeah. To what extent was, were these platforms, which knew full well what it looks like when extremists meet online, when the president stokes violence or hatred, that and, and allowed that stuff on. To what extent were they complicit in getting us to that point? And that's a legal question, right? That's a legal question. I would have I, have I have my doubts about how far we can such a case could go, but that would be an interesting sort of litigation, right? We get to find some of this out. One more point on this. There are people who've been invoking the First Amendment, right? The idea that, that people might have a free speech right in on some of these platforms, which under current doctrine is completely false. But at least we would find out what the rights of users are in that setting, right, um, if, if there were no 230 meeting.
0: Let's, let's stay on this one for a minute, and then I want to come back to the housing um, uh, work that you, you did around Facebook advertising. But you know, the, I want to try to make this real for folks um, and, and unpack just a little bit more. So one of, the, one of the examples, you know, so let's talk about January 6th. You know, had that, let's say that that made a case was brought forward and Section 230 protection was not afforded. And so then we had the case where the prosecution would lay out all of the various ways. What are some of the kinds of questions that might get asked or answered around the kinds of liabilities or responsibilities that the platforms might be accountable for? What are the kinds of things that might come up? How much knowledge? Did an
1: intermediary have how much? How much did Parler or Twitter know about what kind of imminent lawless action was afoot? Um, and you can see why intermediaries would hate having to wrestle with that question. First of all, it's bad publicity, uh, but it's not an easy call um, necessarily, depending on any given facts, right? So. Right. I think you're right. We should be digging down to particular facts, um, but you know we we don't have them, uh, mm-hmm. and and that's part of the part of the question, right? How how many facts do we need? What kind of facts do we need to sort out what the complicity of an intermediary is when there is when there is uh, violence? Um, and and there are traditional mechanisms under law, under tort law, under statutory law to find out how much. Um, an intermediary is implicated to the extent they're making connections possible. Can I, I mean, the the January 6th question is a very important question. For what it's worth, there are some courts, some judges that have been alert to this problem. I like to refer to Chief Judge Katzman's dissent in the force versus Facebook case, which is about um, um, foreign terrorism. It's not about domestic terrorism. And in that case, Facebook um, succeeds at the Second Circuit um, on the 230 defense. But in the he says, you know, I think we need to rethink this. Uh, Facebook has created a platform that has enabled terrorists. At Hamas, I believe, is the, one of the implicated um, you know, terrorists in the group. Um, um, Facebook has enabled folks to meet online in ways that are never possible before and, in fact, pushing and delivering content to the likeliest people right, to be, that would be interested in this. And for that, for that litigation, the question is whether there was a material support of terrorism under the relevant anti-terrorism mm-hmm. statutes, the Patriot Act or something. Um, and and, and Katzman says, we never get to this. Courts, we can do better. We are equipped to evaluate whether there's when there's when there's some law, lawless activity here and whether an intermediary is materially supporting um, bad, bad conduct.
0: I think that that point really struck me in in the uh, couple of pieces I I read, where you talk about that the barrier prevents us from ever getting to ask the question, that that blanket protection means we never get a refinement uh, of the law and its intention that comes from precedent and and court cases, instead, we just get this case is thrown out, this case is thrown out. And so there is no discussion a refinement of that. Right. Is Is that fair?
1: Absolutely right, and I say this as someone who thinks there probably, in most cases, would not be material support. I also have doubts, for example, about how how much President Trump would be implicated, therefore whether or not Twitter, you know, or some intermediaries would be. But I don't know. Like we don't know, and we don't know, and I'm, I'm not the best gauge of what courts would decide either, um, on on some of this. So so absolutely right. You get, you've got you've got my reading right on this.
0: Do you think that protection has prevented platforms from being more innovative to protect users from harmful content like disinformation?
1: It's a good question. That's a good question. And I would be um, uh, unfair, it would be unfair for me to say that they haven't been creative. I mean, there, there is a market imperative uh, for intermediaries to care about the kinds of content that their users see. And and it and at least it's because of the bad publicity that comes from a news report or some incident, uh, and so there's a kind of damage control uh, that compels more caution. Um, so, uh, and, and Twitter has been very interesting in this regard, right? I mean, they, they're the ones that have, I mean, and Facebook too, but other intermediaries have come up with different kind of moderation tools that are not, that doesn't take content down, but that warns users about the veracity or the authenticity of um, a post by a user. Um, and, you know, there are a variety of other um, design features that they're tinkering with, um, you know, that is you can limit the people to whom your post gets to and who can comment on it, that kind of thing. So, so yes, they have been creative. And I will say something that I haven't said. Right, One of the impetuses for the, for the original language of Section 230 was to promote what I've called a market for moderation so that different companies can be creative in different ways. Right. So some people might want to go to Reddit, and some people might want to go to Parler, and some people might want to go to Twitter to find different moderation standards. Uh, and I do think we have some of that, right? Twitter likes to, I think distinguish itself from Facebook, for example. Um, so So they have been creative. I think that w- so I, this is a long answer to your question, but I think okay. they would still be creative because mm-hmm. because they still want to make money. Mm-hmm. and And um, innovation has always cont- contoured and and restructured itself pursuant to the limits of law, right? I mean,' that's, this is always the case. So they would just be creative in different ways, uh, and I'm happy to say more about this. But but I, I I I understand that the concern would be that whatever that creativity entails might chill more speech online than we want. And maybe mm-hmm. this is a way you a line of conversation you want to take.
0: Almost. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to keep going in this direction, and that was going to be my next question. You know, as Certainly the last year or so it has felt like every week there's another proposal to reform section 230. Uh, and on our way through uh, the US presidential election cycle, uh, you had uh, the rare case where both candidates uh, were not supportive of section 230 in its current form. Uh, and so change feels inevitable and also it's not happening very quickly. And so one question you know, on this innovation uh, in moderation, or in other tactics, you know, are there things that you um, you think that um, platforms or policymakers should be doing in the meantime while we wait for the big piece, which is Section Two Thirty reform, which is such a big piece of work? But are there other things that they should be doing in the meantime uh, to meet their obligation to the public and to their users?
1: Um, I'm not the person to ask that. I I do appreciate you asking me that. Um, that question: uh, Are there things short of legal reform that mm-hmm. we can pursue um, that would get us to an, a better place? And the reason I don't think I'm the right person to answer that is because I my principal argument is that legal reform is the way to get us to a better place. Um, the other things are extant and uh, under 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 work, right? Um, so the Facebook Oversight Board. Is mm-hmm. an example of that. Actually, I should. I'm, I've been told that it's it's not the Facebook Oversight Board. It's the Oversight Board, um, just to underscore its independence uh, from Facebook, and it has shown some independence uh, for sure in the decisions it's taken in the past couple of months, mm-hmm. um, to uh, asserting that that Facebook should put stuff back up. Um, and there's, and Instagram is, is covered by this as well, um, and, and there's chatter about Twitter and others um, joining something like that. So, so all there alternatives, sure, there are all other alternatives, um, but that doesn't get at the core problem for me. The core problem is that law, for better or worse, but for mostly for the better, engenders a sense of civic responsibility. That's why we apply it. That's you know, maybe I'm a law professor that's biased in this regard, but I don't think you need to be a law professor to believe that, right? There's sometimes when law goes too far, uh, absolutely. But, but, but for, at, a, at a bare minimum, I think we accept that the regulatory regime engenders a sense of civic responsibility that we have not seen in the first instance, right? So that they assume and, and carry the, the costs of the harms that their platforms perpetuate.
0: I think that's fair. And um, I wanted to then maybe bring you back to the legal side of that coin. Um, because I, I, I know you have uh, suggested that, obviously, perhaps, but Section 230 isn't the only avenue in law available. Um, are there other places, and I asked this in the context of a commission thinking about recommendations that it yeah. might, might consider, are there other places where you would recommend, in addition to Section 230, to look at in terms of tools in the legal toolbox to, to pull that that regulatory or, or legal lever.
1: And you probably meant that, Ryan, and I and I responded maybe more than uh, I should have. Um, I do think there are other le- potential legal interventions, uh, for sure. Um, you know, I'm and, and just to underscore, I'm not inside these companies, right. So I don't know what what the, you know, kind of extra legal interventions would be, but um, people have talked about um, imposing constraints on um, targeted advertising. Uh, this is to me a, a bit attenuated from the material harms that flow from content that is posted but but it, it's helpful um, if targeted advertising for example is is forbidden in areas for which there are strong civil rights protections housing, education, credit, employment right mm-hmm. and why is that important because, the way it's worked in the biggest inter- on the biggest intermediaries, the ad managers and their the, and the and the other um, ad services enable advertisers to exclude people from posts and content. That's that's you know that's the that's the miracle of of targeted advertising to kind of narrow the folks that you can reach in an ad can that will, um that an ad will reach. And so so I I'm very open to that. Um, that kind of reform, uh, and, and there it, it does raise interesting um, free speech questions. Uh, that is, whether you banning targeted advertising as a phenomenon is presents um, a, a problem under the First Amendment. I don't tend to think it is because these are areas in which we already forbid discriminatory. I mean, that kind of kind of content. So you can't advertise. Um, um, you know, it's a speech act, but you can't advertise in ways that are discriminatory. So, so I'm not as worried about it, but this court is have, has a very expansive view of the First Amendment. So, you know, I I, I will float that as a possible limitation. Uh,
0: and then again, you might be the kind of guy who likes the idea that that law would then get tested in the court, as laws should be.
1: <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, the Federal Trade Commission has been um, at this uh, for some time. On, uh, has. Let me back up a second. You may remember from last summer the um, Trump administration, um, its foray into Section Two Hundred and Thirty included an executive order Mm -hmm. that recommended um, that that would would have the Commerce that would have the NTIA, which is the Commerce Department, recommend to the Federal Communications Commission an interpretation of Two Hundred and Thirty C. Um, 2, and which is the one of the protections under 230, um, that never made sense to me for, for a variety of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because the real agency that's been doing a lot of the work of litigating of the, the, um, uh, 230 is the Federal Trade Commission. I mention that because the Federal Trade Commission has, in some circumstances, been successful in litigating 230, um, but those are cases in which there's some real obvious violations in which, where the intermediary, for example, is, is distributing fraudulent or, or fake information or is collecting information that is protected uh, under, uh, is, is under prevailing privacy laws. Um, and, and in some ways, I, I mentioned this because there are categories in which policymakers have been thinking about going after intermediaries uh, and been successful. The problem is that they're only going after the ones that are so glaringly mm-hmm. offensive, right? The ones that are truly materially contributing to, to bad
0: conduct. Um, you mentioned advertising. And so I, I wanna give you a few minutes to talk through this story about, uh, that I read about in your, in your New York Times op-ed. Uh, we talked about the work that you were involved with around housing and targeted advertising. And, and before I ask you to, to tell us the story a little bit, One of the things that I think is really important is that we make this a human story and that the impacts be real. And and so one of the things that is so important about this story is that it actually affects real humans. And so I want you to talk a little bit also about the impact that comes from being discriminated in this way through this advertising.
1: Right, I appreciate the question. Um, And uh, so let's see if I can do this um, briefly. Um, So in, 19, in 2016, ProPublica, um, the leadership of Julia Anglin, who has now at, started her own um, data at the markup, um, was in, uh, led a, a series of investigations um, uh, associated with what ProPublica, ProPublica called machine bias. So it was addressed to different ways in which automated decision-making systems were perpetuating um, despair, racial disparities and other disparities. One of the things they discovered um, creatively is that the ad manager uh, Facebook's ad manager was allowing advertisers to exclude and include different categories based on racial proxies or gender proxies or age or national origin proxies. And um, what what the, the, the key part here is that this this what they discovered is that a housing broker or a housing manager could, decide that they want an advertisement to reach just a limited number of people. I want to reach um, you know, Upper West Side. I live in Manhattan, so uh, I can say the same about Aspen, by the way, right? But I, I want to reach a, 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 you know, kind of narrow slice of the world, well-to-do white, upper middle-class folks for a building that has generally been occupied by that kind of um, um those kind of people and, and uh, what the advertiser could do is mark those out in the ad managers the targets for the ad and exclude all others. Um, and then you could also provide a list to Facebook and that list would generate a lookalike list that would amplify um, the demographic characteristics uh, and send it out a you know, hundred times um, to people who fit that demographic. The reason this is important is because Facebook is clearly creating an opportunity for advertisers that wasn't possible. But what's so pernicious about this is that people, a young Latina woman, never knows that this is happening, right? This is the danger of this kind of targeted advertising. It is so, it purports to be, and in most cases is so precise that the people who are harmed never know it, nor do policymakers. So that person who visits their Facebook page, um, is happy to get the ads they get, is not the worst, is, is, no, is no better off um, as far as they know, uh, or no worse off as far as they know, when in fact they are. So I, I don't know if that's uh, concrete enough, but the litigation uh, that followed, uh, uh, there were five suits that were filed in 2017 across the country. The main ones was the National Fair, Fair Housing Alliance in New York and the Mobley case, which was the most, I think, well-known in California. And those cases were settled in March, 2019. Um, Facebook in recognition perhaps of what it how it looked uh, and, and maybe because they weren't sure whether they would survive the 230 litigation, who knows, um, settled for $5 million, which as you know is, you know, that's not a lot of money for, that's, I don't know what that, that's toilet paper money for Facebook. <laughs> Um, Q-tip paper for you know a Q-tip money for for Facebook, but um but they also agreed to um, not allow it in certain uh, on uh, they would they would not allow it in those kinds of ads in a designated portal but would not allow advertising based on those dimensions. One more point on this, um, uh, just last month no the, earlier this month the the MIT Tech Review, um, would, had discovered that these patterns of discrimination continue. Even if the automated systems um, are are not allowed to use these categories, or advertisers are not allowed to use these categories, the automated systems still um, enable advertisers to reach audiences pursuant to the demographics that um, are aligned with the audiences that these advertisers have reached before. So the most recent report from the MIT Tech Review from earlier this month is that young women um, are being excluded from certain, certain employment ads um, online on, on Facebook's ad manager. So uh, uh, you know, if, if people are worried about advertising, disc- discrimination in advertising, they should be deeply worried about the protection that 230 has erected um, in this setting in my mind.
0: So what we're talking about here is, is tools that are enabling intentional exclusion of advertising towards particular groups. Not just targeting two groups but the exclusion of other groups and the sort of denial of access of that information to groups that otherwise might want it. A young woman might want that job, uh, a black man might want to live in that apartment.
1: Exactly right and what's most um, difficult here, most troubling, is that um, if the automated systems work in the ways that the intermediaries intend them to, they would still recreate the advertisements or the, the delivery of these advertisements in spite of the ostensible claim that they are not categories that advertisers can choose. Um, I'm not smart enough as a data scientist to know that ha- how that happens. And as I understand it, many da- data scientists themselves are, are um, not completely aware of how to control against that sort mm-hmm. of phenomenon. But, but alas, uh, this remains a problem that we never get to the bottom of.
0: So I I know that you focus your interventions in law, but I'm gonna ask you uh, this question anyway, Um, because part of this speaks to the root of the challenge, which is the reason a tool like this exists is because of the structure and business model uh, of the product. And so do you think these kinds of problems can be fixed with law or policy yeah. Or do we also have to look at the underlying business models that power those businesses?
1: Yeah. So I've, maybe this is another answer to your earlier question about what other things can we do. And and I you know I talked about targeted advertising, but I absolutely agree with you that the business model um, has much to do with this because these companies pursue their bottom line is to, is, is generally to optimize user engagement at all costs. Now they they are. More and more alert to the social costs, but that's not part of—it's not baked into their business model. Uh, and and arguably, a compliance department that has to now attend to the legal harms would bake it into the business model as a matter of design, which is is what I've I've argued, and it's the kind of thing that I'm I'm far more interested in, in seeing rolled out. So, um, I do think Section Two Thirty Reform is business model reform. I think going after um, targeted advertising, uh, advertising apart from 230 reform, is um, good legal reform. I'm also enthusiastic about um, uh, antitrust um, in this regard, um, which I think would also um, go after a business model that is a, that is uh, chiefly about acquisition for the biggest companies, um, but also um, seeks to optimize user engagement across platforms vertically and horizontally. So. Um, I think there are many tools that will be available to regulators to get at the business model, but I think I'm, you know, I'm, I i do not want to sound like, you know, you know, I'm beating this, this point. Um, but, but the, I do think that the, the legal reform that gets at the business model is one in which the companies actually have to account for their social harms in the ways that other companies
0: do. That's great. Um, I appreciate the answer. Um, I have One more question for you that goes into the sort of algorithmic bias uh, topic and uh, a bit ripped from your Twitter feed, so you'll uh, forgive me for that one, uh, on the FTC's blog post from earlier this week. Um, And then, well, kind of a wrap up question. Um, So um, in this blog post from the FTC from last week, um, they wrote, and I'll just quote it, the FTC Act prohibits unfair or deceptive practices that would include the sale or use of, for example, racially biased algorithms. Um, And I wanted to give you a chance to to comment on what you think is the role of the federal government in monitoring or regulating algorithms and their impact on the public and what opportunities or responsibilities you think might exist, given the kinds of harms we just talked about and the way an algorithm can sort uh, and and enable or disable access to, to the public.
1: Well, I appreciate this question. And I have to say um, it's 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 got to be uh, an exciting time to be at the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, I don't <laughs> know if people have always thought that. Um, but I believe it is. Uh, Lena Khan's um, recent hearing suggests that she'll get on the commission. Um, and uh, I'm excited to see what um, they will do. This post uh, that I retweeted, I don't I don't post that much original stuff. I do retweet and like. Um, uh, is a, is an is an amazing is an amazing post by a senior um, line attorney at the FTC where um, where the so it's, it's a warning shot right that the that the FTC it may not be the commissioners that have made this claim nor is it the consumer protection division's head that's made his claim it's this person and clearly they're thinking about ways of getting at um, algorithmic discrimination automated. Um, um, automated decision-making systems um, bias, and one way that I think I'm most alert to is finding categories in which, before these systems are deployed, you test its impact, right? And we actually have, you know, there's there, the Senate has been considering something an allegor- something called an algorithmic impact statement, which draws from something I think folks at the Aspen Institute know something about environmental impact statements. Um, Algorithmic impact statements would would require an assessment of of what are the likely impacts, particularly as it relates to historically marginalized groups or protected categories of of any given um, platform, of any given uh, automated decision making system. And I think I would underscore here that this is not, we're not talking about dating apps, right? We're not talking about recommendations for books necessarily. We're talking about areas in which we have serious concerns about racial disparity or gender disparity, right? The ones that are actually covered in the civil rights statutes. So if the FTC is alert to this and promulgates some regulation, which seems to be on, the, on a possible um, um, that would require intermediaries or any developer of automated system to gauge the impacts of the system in a specific regulated area I think that would be a very good step. Um, uh, the FTC also has enforcement power. So it could be after the fact when the discovery is made that things are uh, afoot or something is, is a problem. But, but this first instance regulatory intervention that would impose some measure of in, an obligation to evaluate impacts in the first instance, I think would, 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 would do well.
0: But following that post, lots of folks will be keeping their eyes on the FTC to see if, if new things are coming there. I, I,
1: I think so. I think, I mean, a lot of things may be coming and who knows, maybe we're just um, over reading a lot of, of this. I mean, I, I'm hopeful that Congress um, steps in as well, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful.
0: Um, I wanna close with a, a bit of an open question for you is these discussions are meant to give Uh, give thought and inspiration to the the work of the Commission and as we're trying to raise the good work of others in in these conversations. um, Is there anything about CDA 230, ad algorithms or any of the other issues that we've talked about today that you think commissioners should think of when they're deciding what their priorities are uh, for their recommendations, whether it's solutions uh, the government should undertake or the private sector in broader civil society. Is there any advice or direction or suggestion you want to give to them as they focus their attention?
1: Can I cheat and give you two? Of
0: course. Um, One is
1: that intermediaries on the internet today are not speech platforms. They are commercial enterprises. And for me, this is meaningful because it in my mind, it reorients our way of thinking about regulatory oversight. Um, The second is that innovation, and this is probably a more controversial statement, I don't think it's crazy, but it's a little more controversial, that innovation is a second order, really third order public policy priority. The public policy priorities are things like equality, consumer protection, um, um, competition. I mean, those are those are important public policy priorities, but innovation for me is too um, wishy-washy, indeterminate, but yet used as a as a as a kind of cudgel um, or an ar- as an argument for its own sake, um, and it, it, it doesn't do a lot of work without knowing what it's for, uh, and so uh, I think you know if to the extent you want to choose one of those two, I think I would focus on that one that that innovation is not public policy priority as much as equality, consumer protection, and competition.
0: Well said. Uh, Olivier, thank you so much for making time to speak with us and uh, and for answering our questions. I'm really grateful for your work and and for your time today. So thank you.
1: You're very generous to have invited me. And I appreciate the questions uh, very much. Thanks, Ryan.